Lord, I'm thankful that in your word you remind us uh, to share things, to recount things, and to think about things. And so as we look at the things in our lives that are uh, lovely and commendable and, and worthy of praise um, tonight, it's everything from uh, video games to life. Um, it, it is, uh, we are sitting here as a very blessed people. So Lord, specifically, we thank you for the truth of the word that we don't, we don't sit and study something that's partially true or mostly true. We study what is completely true, and it's not just something we study. It's, it, it is alive. It is in Christ, and it is um, uh, what we're to live out. Uh, I'm thankful that there's really no areas where we have to just wing it and figure it out as we go, but we, we, have, we are an informed people moving in an informed manner, uh, still by faith, but also very much informed. Um, those are not different things. Lord, I also uh, thank you for, uh, uh, as the Edwards have had a, a long uh, few weeks, um, I'm thankful for provision in the body. I'm thankful for encouragement from fellow believers. I'm thankful for um, at least a uh, diagnosis, uh, though. And, uh, and we also pray for uh, a plan, a treatment plan that is, that is good. And uh, I'm thankful for their time together as, as a family. Uh, getting to go on vacation uh, when, when for a while it looked as though it wouldn't happen. Thankful for their time together in that and for the body's role and encouragement and uh, coming alongside during a difficult season. We also pray uh, thanks for family and for borrowed breath. And we pray for uh, Stephen and his family as they are uh, mourning a loss. And I'm thankful that they have, at the very least, they have believers around them. Uh, who are encouraging them and walking with them and, in fact, weeping with those who weep uh, as it is appropriate. Uh, I pray that you would keep us from ever taking uh, family for granted and taking breath for granted. Um, as we'll engage in Exodus 16 tonight, it's very, we very quickly take things for granted that are um, so precious and so uncommon, and, uh, and we become dull in our thinking uh, when you call us to worship. Lord, we thank you for our creator. We thank you that God made the world and that we know that we are not creator, but we are created. I thank you for our very real presence uh, where you are here, you're with us. You, you tell us that when we pray, you, you, you're listening. Uh, I'm thankful that true transformation can take place because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, we thank you for Aunt Karen's peppermints. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids, y'all are dismissed. You'll turn to Exodus 15. Whose song did we engage last week? It's not a hard question. It shouldn't have taken so long. Moses, there we go. Uh, and what was that song about? Deliverance. 
Yeah, deliverance through the Red Sea. What else? Egyptians being covered by the Red Sea because of God. What else was the song about? Yeah, the work of God's mighty hand, absolutely. Uh, How could it have been offensive? Yeah, there, there are warriors who died who have families, and when you say God triumphed for us, it could be, we could look at that and say, wow, well, that, that could be offensive to some people. However, it is totally appropriate. Jesus was on their side, and the reason for their victory was Jesus. Um, there's still a hole in the wall, so we can still hear what's going on outside, so I want to acknowledge it so that we can ignore it. So there's a hole, we can hear it, and now we ignore it. Um, what makes a good song? Words. words. Any words? Good words. Good songs are made up of good words. That's correct. Yes, I was, I was thinking, so says the wife of a songwriter. What else makes up a good song? Thought. How can thought lead to a good song? Yeah, the poet lingers, time spent on it. Look at what's there and consider truth and, and make sure that the song is an expression of truth. Um, truth informs our experience. A lot of songwriters feel that it is experience that trumps everything, and I, I'm going to write about that. But really, truth informs our experience because the way that I feel isn't necessarily the way that it is. My emotions sometimes lie to me. And so a really good song can express that by saying, this is what truth says, even though maybe you feel that way. So Renee Finner, is she in here? She sent me a textbook or a, te- a Facebook message, textbook message. <laughs> a, uh, just mixed all my forms of communication there um, with the lyrics to G6 which those of you who know this song, you'll know, that's funny. Um, she was trying to show the depth of using the word scissorp to rhyme with slizzerp. It's a beautiful song. Don't go listen. Um, so truth and great effort. Uh, I think we can say make up a great song. And I would say that th- this that we're engaging in Exodus 15, it, we need to know that it's the first recorded song in the scriptures. And so I think God in his breathed out word, which is profitable for reproof and for, for, for training in righteousness. And, and uh, I think that he would, he would make sure not to have a lame song as the first one. And, and we can learn from it as we look at its dynamics. Um, something we also need to not lose sight of is who is singing this song? Yeah, all the people of Israel, which is how many? Yeah, a million or two. Um, so that's what we need to hear. Like, climb in, import your senses. This is our story. So our people are singing this song. And so you're hearing uh, really maybe a couple million voices as one voice, as it says in Romans 15, that we would with one voice glorify God, um, singing this song. So these lyrics are important. These lyrics were taught to hundreds of thousands of people, millions of people, 
heard these lyrics, knew these lyrics, could sing these lyrics, and they all sang it together, I can't imagine what that sounds like. It's probably a lot of what heaven's going to sound like when you think about it. Lots of singing with one voice. It was probably very beautiful. So we're in uh, 1513 is where we're climbing back into this week. 1513. We got through the first 12 verses last week. And so we're going to start in 13. I'm going to read 13 through 21, and then we'll look at it a piece at a time. Verse 13 in chapter Exodus 15. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain, your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh, that's the end of the song. Now, for when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. We got to see the difference there. There are some who try to explain this in a scientific manner saying, well, it was just a matter of it dried up enough to walk across and then it came back. But here we just see God saying, I want you as God, I want you to see my people walked on dry land. And in a moment's time, I brought the water back over where no Egyptians lived. No Egyptians made it. And so God wants us to see the difference between the outcome for the Israelites and the outcome for the Egyptians, the difference of dry land and drowning. You don't drown on dry land. See how quickly it happened and how catastrophic it was for those who were not walking in faith uh, with their Lord. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Uh, there was one Sunday when someone brought their own tambourine to worship. And they had, luckily they had good rhythm. That has nothing to do with the study. I just remember it. Every time I see tambourine, I'm like, I remember the Sunday someone brought a tambourine. They sat right back there. And they played it the whole time the worship band led. Um, don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, so verse 13. You have led uh, your, uh, in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. Who is led? Who is, who is God leading here? His people. Who are what? Redeemed. What does redeemed mean? Brought back. And in this oh, bought back. Bought back, yeah. And in this case, bought back from what? Slavery, okay. Uh, so the people, the, who is led, the, the redeemed, and what is their destination? Promised land? How else is that described? Yeah, land flowing with milk and honey. 
What kind of abode? Holy. And what else? The humble abode of the Lord. Uh, what we got to see here is that God's people aren't just being taken from one destination to another destination. They're being brought to God. That's the big picture for us. The, the picture of our aim is not just heaven, it is God. Sometimes we fall short when we're sharing the gospel. And uh, Piper wrote a book about it. God is the gospel was the name of the book. And, and the point that we can see here is that our aim is not just heaven, but it is God. God is ultimately bringing us to himself. So when you share the gospel with someone, you're not just trying to get them to heaven. You're trying to get them to God. When you share that someone is a sinner you, and, and you're encouraging them to repent of their sin, you're not just showing them that there is redemption from their sin and forgiveness of their sins. It doesn't stop there because the point is that we're being brought back to God. So God currently guides us, the redeemed, to himself. We need to see that as we read this. As we see God's people being guided, it's not just from destination to destination. It is ultimately to himself. And we, in a like manner, are in the same place today. He is guiding us to himself. And in the following verses, we see God's people. It's cool when you kind of just don't read the text, but consider what you heard in the text, that they are purchased and passing by while their enemies stand still as stones. See that? These are free people who have not previously known freedom. They are purchased, they are passing by, and their enemies stand still as stones. So the movement is God's people, and the enemies of God's people, there's no movement. It's almost, almost like they're paralyzed as they're standing still as stones. Israel's starting to look pretty good, right? I mean, if you're an Israelite, you'd kind of be like, that's right, y'all better stand still as stones. We're moving along. Yeah, I mean, it, there could be an arrogance here. Turn back to Exodus 9.16. I, I want to make sure that we keep a proper perspective In Exodus 9, 16, God says, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. As Israel is moving forward, purchased and passing by, while all the enemies stand still as stones, it's important not to say, not to puff up Israel too much because the whole point, I mean, it, recap that with your own words. Uh, what is the purpose of this entire movement? Yes, so that God's name will be known. So those who are still as stones aren't still as stones just so that they fear Israel, just so that Israel's name is known. They're still as stones so that God's name is known. There's this, we have to make sure we're, we have a... Uh, a real sober perspective here, that the whole point of this is God's glory, so that in looking at this people, you can see something of God, not just the people, that the people are a reflection of who God is, and not the other way around. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, turn to Exodus 15, back to 15, verses 22 through 27. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, 
which means bitter. In case you're not clear on that. And the people grumbled. Listen, the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. So we didn't just go from not drinkable to drinkable. We went to from bitter to sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule and there he tested them saying, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Now, what is the issue that they face when they set out and they are the purchased passing by those who are still as stones and they're moving forward? What do they encounter three days in? No water. Now tell me, is this a significant problem? Yes, it's a significant problem. No water is a huge problem. We had a water main break and at our, on our block, like, just a few nights ago. And it was like, what do we do? Well, I can't go for a run because I'm not going to go to bed without showering. What am I going to drink? And then Ella panicked. It was hilarious. <laughs> like, we're going to bed. I'm like, sweetheart, the water's off. I got to go take care of some things. Y'all just go to bed. And I put her on. She's like, Daddy, I need a cup of water. I can't. I need some water. And she like, wigged out because there was no water. Like she's never wanted a cup of water so much as when there was no water. And, and it was funny because Lindsay was like, I have to make a bottle. What do we do? I was like, I will go to the well and I will draw water from the well, which is Brookshire's. So I drove to Brookshire's and I got the little thing of water and I went back and we, we poured it in and we put it in the microwave and it heated up and, and we made a bottle. But things changed. Like it was an inconvenience. So what I want us to see here is that not having water is a really significant problem. And it's a problem that gets worse when the number of people increases. Um, what has Israel failed to learn at this point? God is bigger than even your biggest water problem. He is. We have to see this. What I'm getting at is that it doesn't help to say, hey, this isn't a big deal. It is a big deal. God wants them to see, hey, guess what? You have no water, but you do have a God who is true and good, and I provide. So what I'm, what I'm saying is that it doesn't help to say it's not a big deal. What is helpful is to say that God is bigger. The significance of the greatest problem does not supersede my God. God is more significant than the significant problem. And that's very real. This was a real problem. You're talking about a couple million people with no water. There were babies. There were livestock with them. No water is an issue. So God doesn't want you to water it down, sorry, didn't mean it, and say, um, oh, this isn't a big deal. It, sometimes you're in the middle of things in your life where it, you should say, this is a big deal, and my God's bigger than this. 
I, I don't want to diminish the significance of what's going on here because I also don't want to diminish the significance of God. A lot of people work their way through hard times and they say, well, it just wasn't as big of a deal and I just mind over matter and I plowed through. No, what we need to say is that was a huge deal. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to move. I, I was confused and confounded and I did not know what was the next step. And my God is bigger than the situation and he saw me through it. That's how you glorify God. Not by minimizing the situation, but by having a very sober understanding of this is a problem. So are you okay with the Lord testing you? No. I like honest answers. I think it stinks. It's hard. It's difficult. Yeah. Uh, what's, what's unsavory about the Lord testing us? It says here, he tested them. Um, the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. What's hard about the Lord's testing? Yeah. Our flesh almost immediately always says, this is not fair. I do not deserve this. Yeah. It's, it's, you'd be hard-pressed to find a test from the Lord that's not uncomfortable. Yeah. What else? Yeah. Is this a five-minute test, Lord? Or is this a five-year test? Which is it? What do I do? Walk by faith, not sight. What else is hard about God testing us? Yes. There's been so many times where I'm saying, this stinks and this is hard. But what am I, I don't even know what I'm being tested in. Well, what am, I, what am I supposed to grasp here and hold on to and put in my pocket and walk with in faith? What is it? Sometimes that's even confusing. There's such uncertainty when you know the one who has complete certainty in all things. Why else is testing hard? What bubbles to the surface when you're being tested? Who you really are. Yeah, and sometimes who you wish no one knew you were. Um, yeah, who you really are bubbles to the surface. Um, what happens to some people with their mouth when they get stressed out? Oh, their mouth starts running. What sometimes comes out of people's mouth when, when, when it starts running and it gets stressed out? Sometimes they snap at their husbands. Grumbling. What else? Bunch of nonsense. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Do what? Exactly. When you grumble and cuss, you can't say, I didn't mean that. You can't. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You meant it. You just didn't want anyone to know you meant it. That's what you're saying. What you're saying is, I didn't want you to know that was in my heart, which is good. I think, it's, I think it's a good thing to say, I didn't want you to know that was in my heart, but it's out, so let's deal with it. And so what I'm getting at is that um, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and sometimes when we're tested, those things bubble up to the surface. Um, uh, what's the difference between testing and tempting? So anytime we talk about God testing us, we have to make sure this point is clear. Does God tempt you? Okay, how do you know? It says it in James. Very nice. 
Yes, he does not tempt us, but he tests us. What's the difference? I, I'll say this. I feel tempted to sin when I am tested. So how is it that God doesn't tempt us, but he does test us? What's the difference? Yes, he doesn't tempt us to evil. He tests us to show us who we are and how much we need him. So when we are tempted, how do, how do we get to a good result in our testing? Trust. Yeah, usually you're tempted to take matters into your own hand in some way. And God says, trust me. So he does not tempt us, but he does test us. And sometimes the testing is hard. And it's not a good thing to say, oh, this isn't a big deal. God may very well be saying, no, this is a big deal and you really need me. It's not always this mind over matter thing. Sometimes we, not sometimes, all the time, we need to be very, very sober when we realize that um, we are in a trial and we are being tested. Now, uh, there's a thousand verses we could go to here, but we're going to keep going through this, this text. Um, verse uh, 26 in 15 says, uh, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do all, what, that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all the statutes, I'll put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. I don't want y'all to miss the connection here to Hebrews. Um, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, go ahead and turn there. This happens a lot. Almost weekly, there are connections between Sunday's sermon and Wednesday's study. God's insightful like that. <laughs> Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The question is, what is the connection between Exodus and Hebrews, and how do we listen diligently? How do you listen diligently? Because God says in Exodus, if you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, then he's going to do what he does. So how do we listen diligently according to Hebrews? Paying attention to his commands? Keeping his decrees? What's the connection to Jesus? Yes, God speaks to us, has spoken to us in Christ. And what does that mean? Okay. There's... Um, What's the difference between diligence and efficiency? I don't want to go off on too long of a tangent here, but God says, listen diligently. Diligence doesn't imply shortcuts. Efficiency is simply a 
Yeah, efficiency tends to find shortcuts. Efficiency has much more to do with time diligence. Uh, in ministry, one of the things we talk about as as a staff and as we're equipping saints for work in ministry is efficiency is never a guarantee, but diligence is never an option. It, we always have to be diligent. God here is saying, listen diligently. And if, and if he speaks to us in Christ, through Christ, we have to pay attention to what Jesus' aim is in our circumstances in every one of them. And so as you are being tested, you can say, okay, what, what, what's, what's the aim here? What, what do I know about Jesus that applies to this circumstance? How can I, the thing I heard about Jesus on Sunday morning somehow intersects with my life uh, in this circumstance and what, what needs to be done here? That's going to take some thinking. That's going to take diligence, listening diligently. One of, a lot of us have the problem of listening in a very non-diligent way. Listen to remember. Listen to recount. Listen to recall. Listen in such a manner that you can stir up one another by way of reminder. Listen closely when you hear the preached word, when you are teaching, when you have been taught, when you are reading your Bible, when you are hearing someone expose this word. Listen Because remember what we talked about a few weeks ago, anything worth listening to is worth thinking about. When he says, go and think about the things I've taught you and the Lord will give you understanding in everything. We need to listen diligently, not just loosely, haphazardly, um, picking up points here and there. God says, uh, the promises of God find their yes in Christ. Listen closely to what there is here. Look at chapter 16, verse 1. As I read this, remember that this is our story. So it's not just they set out, but we set out, okay? 16.1, this is our story. They set out for El- from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. So my first question is, why would you ever leave Elam? What was Elam? It said it just right there before in 15. Twelve springs of water and 70 palm trees. If you were in Elam right now and there was a big dirty field over there, would you leave Elam and go there? I I preached about this sometime in the last eight years. And I was thinking about it, uh, what it must have been like to leave this place and move into the wilderness of sin. First of all, the name's horrible. Um, if, if any of you have ever been to one of those beautiful all-inclusive resorts in Mexico that's really lush, has anyone ever been to Mexico like before it was as dangerous as it is now? Yeah, the, the, the resorts are all lush. Um, uh, you go and get something to drink and then you go and sit in the shade all day until you become thirsty again where you get another drink. You jump in the pool, and you get back to sitting in the shade. You return to your room. Someone has magically turned all of your towels into cute little animals who hold chocolate treats, where everything you need seems to be just at your fingertips. And then you leave that resort only to wonder where all the exotic animals and lush foliage went. Where did all the dirt and concrete and graffiti come from? And you're concerned if you'll arrive back at the airport alive in spite of your insane cab driver. That's what I think in my mind my messed up mind. It must have been like to leave Elam and go into the wilderness of sin. It's like palm trees and springs of water, and now we're going here. Okay, why? And the point is, is that Elam is not the promised land. Elam is not the promised land. Just for a moment, consider what's your Elam. I don't want to be too, quit being cute here, but what is your Elam? What are you holding on to that maybe 
maybe you're holding on a little too close and seeing it as, as your, your promised land. Like, this is fi- finally, this is what I've always longed for, not realizing there's something much better to be longing for. Some of us have some sort of Elam that maybe we need to move on from faithfully. And it doesn't make any sense. Elam was awesome. It didn't make logical sense to move on with all these people from a place where there were palm trees and springs of water to some, some wilderness. So, but that's what faith looks like a lot of times. The reason that Israel did not settle in Elam is that God had something much greater in store for them. And sometimes we need to be reminded of this when we begin to use promised land lingo on things that are temporal and fleeting. We can use that promised land lingo on house or car or possessions or relationships. Finally, what I've always longed for, these temporal things serve the purpose of pointing to the worth of the one who we will dwell with forever. Remember, God's not just taking us from destination to destination. He's bringing us to himself. Israel is ultimately created for something greater than Elam. So whatever that Elam is in your mind, you need to know you're created for something greater than that. So at this, at this point in Exodus, just to kind of take a bird's eye view, we're two and a half months into the Exodus. At this point in Exodus, we're two and a half months into the story of Exodus. And um, every speaking person could give a firsthand account of God's abundant goodness. See where we're at. Every speaking person could talk about the pillar and the cloud and the deliverance and the day, the very moment that they were no longer slaves. There are people in this group who could say, I went into that Egyptian house and I plundered them verbally. I just asked for their stuff. And they were like, here you go. People could give a firsthand account. We're only two and a half months in. This is all very fresh, everything that's going on. Look at verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. In verse 2, things quickly go south. It's, it's weird almost. You're reading it and you're like, wait, what? Provision? Freedom? Palm trees? Springs of water? Oh, there's this bitter water and I threw a stick in it and it's sweet. It's not just potable, but, but sweet. And now, like, Bam! Flip the switch, grumbling. The whole congregation grumbled, not just some of them. The whole congregation grumbled. How many are in that congregation? Yeah, how miserable is that? You ever had like two kids grumbling at the same time? Millions. Whole congregation grumbling. And it's not just, it's not light. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it is safe to assume that the hearts of the Israelites are discontent. Over a million freed slaves with a million discontent hearts. They weren't just grumbling on the surface. It was in their heart and out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks and they grumbled, the whole congregation. This is not just a matter of saying the wrong things. Their heart is not right, and this is a worship issue for Israel. This is a worship issue. When you grumble, it is a worship issue. It's not a circumstance issue. When we grumble, we're saying, this is a circumstance issue. If my circumstances change, I'll love God again. And it's a worship issue is what's going on. And the result is grumbling. Now, I want to be careful here because sometimes when we talk about this, we can sort of flip the Israelite goofball switch where we start referring to Israel as a bunch of uninformed morons wandering the desert with no common sense whatsoever. That's not what we're dealing with here. 
we need to consider this part of our story with a sober mind. A sober mind that is very much in touch with reality. Reality is undistorted in the sober mind. And our reality for us is that our God is exceedingly and overwhelmingly good. Always has been, always will be. The other reality in Exodus 16 is that our Israelite brothers and sisters are in some dire circumstances. They're facing hunger and they need a big God. They had great reason to be concerned. However, they did not have any good reason to be unthankful and godless in their movement. So it's okay for you to be concerned when things seem to be going south. But it's not okay for you to be unthankful and godless and and forget the one who has redeemed you from the worst things. Richard Baxter says, What a foolish thing is this, that because I have not got what I want, I will not enjoy the comfort of what I have. What a foolish thing it is that because I do not have what I want, I will not enjoy the comfort of what I have. Israel has their freedom and they have God. And they're not enjoying him because of their circumstances. Yet they don't even go to God. Who do they complain to? Yeah, they go to Moses and they complain. They don't say, God, help us. We need you. We know you can provide for us. They just want to go to the closest guy they can find and file their complaint because their circumstances are so hard. They have their freedom, they have God, yet they don't even go to God who is capable of provision as he has shown again and again and again and again. They grumble against Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 3. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Has anyone ever seen Anchorman? Or thank you for confessing that. Um, when Ron Burgundy gets totally irrational, like this is ridiculous. I mean, he just goes over the top irrational. When I read these words, I hear it in Ron Burgundy's voice when he's losing his mind. It's, it's like, really? That's, that's your your version of Egypt? That's what it was. This is not a sober-minded account. How quickly we forget what God has brought us through and delivered us from. So often, we can look back on a season or a salary or a relationship, and we focus on all the reasons that we wish we were back there. This is not the whole story. What about the oppression? What about the making bricks without straw? What about being pressed very hard? What about worsening conditions? What about when you cried out to God saying, help us, Lord? What about the Lord hearing your cry because your conditions were so bad? This is just not a sober-minded account. What about Pharaoh's meanness? What about your lack of rest? What about less than six months ago you guys were crying out to God? Their freedom was not simply about their freedom, but about their service to God. It was about worship. God was freeing them to go serve Him. So your freedom is not just about your freedom. Your freedom is about your service to God, that you would worship him in everything. You, you are free from the, from the wages of sin being death that you might serve God. It's about worship. Remember, let us go three days into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Now two and a half months later, uh, they're two and a half months in, they've, they've lost sight of what was important. Their, their problem is with their worship and it is being made known in how they deal with their hunger. Hear that. With Israel, 
Their problem is with their worship, and it's being made known in how they deal with their hunger. So you may have a worship problem that's being made known in how you deal with whatever hard circumstance you find yourself in the middle of. Maybe it's hunger. Maybe it's doubt. Maybe it's fear of what's to come. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a broken friendship. There are a thousand different things, but sometimes your worship problem can be made known in how you deal with something uh, else like hunger. Marriage, finances, parenting. Uh, they cannot truthfully say, is, I mean, just see this. You've got to see this. Israel can't say, you know what? I'm totally square with God. I have no problem with God. I just want to go back to Egypt. They can't say that. You say, hey, I got no problem with, with, with Yahweh. We're good. I just want to go back to Egypt. It was so good there. That's not true. That's not a sober assessment. That's not a sober-minded move. This is grumbling. That's what we're seeing here. You can look at Israel and say, you are free. You are guarded and you are guided by God. Jesus, the Shekinah glory, is lighting your way and covering your rear, providing this water and, and you're you got to hang out at Elam for a while, and you're moving, and though you are passing by, you are freed, you are purchased, you are passing by, the others are still as stones. You are guarded and guided by God, and you have better options than grumbling. Grumbling is a horrible sin. And I, I would almost go as far as to say it's likely we've all been guilty of it at some point today. Grumbling is a horrible sin. We can't wink at it just because everyone else does it. Baxter, Richard Baxter goes on to say, Do you not account this folly in your children? You give them some food and they are not contented. Perhaps they say it is not enough. They cry for more, like Ella does every meal. And if you do not immediately give them more, they will throw away what they have. I've got a bowl of cereal, but I want more cereal. And because I'm not getting what I want, the more I will take what I have and I will throw it. You see children do that. My little brother used to have cereal, and if he couldn't see the sugar sprinkled on top of it, he would throw it against the wall. Yeah, my mom had a copy of The Strong-Willed Child in her car and on her desk at home and in the kitchen and on her nightstand. Um, he was a, he was, he's good now. He loves Jesus. Thank the Lord. But Baxter's saying, picture that. That's how we act when we're discontented with our Lord, when we grumble, when we give in to discontentment. Jeremiah Burroughs in the 1600s wrote a book called The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Not the common jewel, or jewel one, rare jewel, even more crazy of, of Christian contentment. I mean, what would the book be titled today? They cry for more, and if you do not immediately give them more, they will throw away what they have. Though you account it folly in your children, yet you deal thus with God. God gives you many mercies, but you see others have more mercies than you, and therefore you cry for more. But God does not give you what you want, and because of that, you throw away what you have. Is not this folly in your hearts? Is it not unthankfulness? By all your discontent, you cannot help yourselves. You cannot get anything by it. Discontentment and grumbling gets you nothing. There's no time where you grumble and are discontent and say, oh, finally, thank the Lord, that vehicle got me to what I really wanted. It never happens like that. Mostly it misrepresents who your God is. So each of us sit here blessed abundantly. 
We woke with a borrowed breath to mercies that were new this morning. We hold in our hands an account breathed out by God that communicates clearly the unending worth of our Savior. Yet maybe even today, many of us have cried out in unthankful discontent. Baxter, or I'm sorry, Burroughs says, maybe some of us uh, inwardly we are bursting with discontent, notwithstanding uh, their outward silence. God hears the peevish, fretful language of their souls. Um, he talks about in the first chapter of his book how a lot of us are like pretty neat shoes, like a shiny leather shoe on the outside, all nice and neat and fancy, but inside it pinches the flesh. And that that's how a lot of us are. And he talks about how uh, from the Psalms, how our soul has a language that only God can hear. And it's like no matter how glad-handing, smiley you are inside, your soul bursts with discontent, and God hears the peevish and fretful language of your souls. Um, I wish I could speak to you about God's goodness without having to remind you of, of our depravity. That's what's happening here. Israel's being reminded of their depravity and the way that they're responding to hard circumstances. Talking about depravity is not popular. And as, 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 there's a lot of pastors who just say, I'm not going to do it. There's some pastors I've heard say, I'm not going to talk about sin. It's too negative. Well, if it's wages or death, you better talk about it. You can't dismiss that. It'd be easier in our minds if we could talk about God's goodness without having to talk about our depravity. Uh, I could just give an account of the life and peace part of the covenant without troubling you with the fear and awe part of the covenant. But God's covenant with us is one of life and peace and fear and awe. And it's against the backdrop of our great needs and our total depravity that we marvel at the extraordinary beauty of God's unsearchable greatness. Look at how far Israel has sunk in such a short time. What do they accuse Moses and Aaron of? Murder! Like, not just your meanies. Murder. That's a quick movement in the wrong dang direction. Murder. That's what they accused Moses and Aaron of. From the lips of Moses and Aaron, Israel has received some of the greatest news that they've ever heard. We're going to the promised land. You're going to be free. God is good. He lights our way. He covers our rear. He is with us. Oh, he told me about this stick. Look, we can drink that water and it's sweet. Yet they accused them of murder. By Moses and Aaron's hands, at God's will, they were led out of captivity, not only freed, but abundantly provided for. And it is Moses and Aaron, who the whole congregation accuses of being not vessels of mercy, who delivered them and led them, but murderers who aimed to end them. Like, it's such a drastic extreme. It's like going from, you go from someone you, you value highly to accusing them of the worst thing you could accuse them of. Just because you're moody because of this, the, the circumstances. This is hard, and this is so normal. It's sad. Any of us could be guilty of something like this. You tell someone who loves you deeply, you hate me. That's not true. That, that, that's emotional, and your emotions are lying to you. This should astonish us. Um, how could so many think so wrongly? Uh, it's, a, it's a sad thing when our conditions change for the worse and we begin to assume the worst about each other, even, even our leadership sometimes. There are many pastors who have been wronged by people who loved them. There are many pastors who have wronged people who have loved them. It's so weird. I'm looking at Moses and Aaron thinking, 
I wish that was a one-time deal, but it's not. It's pretty common when we begin to grumble and are discontent. Look at verse 4 through 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. What? Really? Like the stick in the water wasn't enough. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning, you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? All right. So God's going to rain down bread from heaven. You may be thinking, that's not fair. They don't deserve that. Did anyone think that? That's not fair. They don't deserve that. You'd be right. Exactly right. And you've successfully defined grace and mercy. Israel did not receive the wrath of God as they deserved. If they got what they deserved, God would have said, you're dead. Eternally. Torment. Lake of fire. Sulfur. The wages of sin is death. That's what they deserved. But they got mercy. Instead, rather, they received grace in the form of bread from heaven. And it doesn't end there. This is coming to them from the hand of God in the form of a test. Now, again, why do we test things? We talked about testing earlier. Let's talk about a little more. Why do we test things? Why do you test the water in your pool? Say, say what? To see how good. Yeah, to see its level of purity or not. Why do you test children in school? Yeah, what we're looking for when we test things is to find a particular result. So God's testing them. God aims to see if they will walk in the law that he's going to give them in here in four chapters later. He's testing them to, to, to see if they're going to walk in the law that he's going to give them. We test things to find a particular result. He's not tempting them to sin. He's providing for them and testing them. Why? That they may grow in their faith and dependence on him that they would not be easily shaken like they have been. That's what God's moving in. Grow in your faith. Grow in your walk. Know that in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Depend on me completely. Don't, I want to put you in a circumstance where there's a million people and no water. What are you going to do now? I want to put you in a circumstance where there's a million people and no food. What are you going to do now? God's wanting them to be dependent upon him. That's what it means to grow us in our faith. So the rules are gather a day's portion every day, which begs the question, God, you hear God saying, I'm God, will you trust me for tomorrow's bread? They couldn't go out and gather enough for the week. They had to gather it for the day. Who do you view as your family's provider? You or God? On the sixth day, God will provide twice as much. So gather twice as much that you may observe the Sabbath rest. Now you may be thinking, Wait a minute, my boss doesn't pay me twice as much on Friday to get me through the weekend. However, the principles remain. Will you trust God's design? One, do you trust that you need rest? Hey, let's stop there for a minute. Do you trust that you need rest? Let's sit in, yeah, get uncomfortable. Do you trust that you need rest? Do you trust that six days' work is enough for seven days' provision? 
<laughs> Get the kids to rest. Maybe I will. Um, in, in verses 7 through 8, it says, uh, In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. We're just going to stop there and just see that I mean, just take it in. They grumbled against God, and he provided abundantly for them. There's something to be enjoyed of in, in our God here. You have grumbled against God, and he's provided for you more abundantly than you can even fathom. I don't want to just teach us to the point of knowledge. I don't want to teach just so that you can leave here with a handful of facts you didn't know before. Like, oh, I didn't know it was just six days of provision. No, that's cool. I didn't know there was double on the sixth day. I didn't know they said that. I didn't know about that stick in the water. That's cool. I don't want you to just leave here knowing more. I, I want your affections for God raised. I, I want us to look at this, and it's a great place to stop seeing so God provided for them abundantly. They didn't earn it. They couldn't earn it. A lot of us will read this story and say, I would feel way better if they weren't such jerks towards God before he did such good things. It's very often in spite of us that we are blessed abundantly, being given grace and mercy. And so I want to encourage you to go walk in that. Listen diligently, much like you're called to in Hebrews, to listen diligently. Enjoy your God. In, in teaching, the hope is to teach to obey. And obeying is enjoying your Lord. Obedience is not this burdensome, all obey. Uh, the greatest obedience is when we're really enjoying our satisfaction is in, indeed in our Lord. And so take that in. Consider that. Think about it, but also take it to heart that you might walk in the truth that your God is the kind of God who provided for Israel when they grumbled against him in such a horrible manner and accused his leadership of horrible things. Murder. Yet, he provided abundantly for him. Bread from heaven. The food of angels. Abundantly. Daily. For what we'll find out next week. 40 years. This wasn't a one-time thing. It's 40 years of this abundant heavenly bread provision. And we have a tendency to grumble. When you grumble, think about the goodness of your God. And say, is this appropriate? Am I misrepresenting my God in my grumbling? Or am I showing people how great he is? Let's pray. Lord, I confess I have grumbled today. There were times today where I was frustrated with circumstances. Your, your provision is always abundant. Everyone sitting here has far more than they need physically, mentally, and spiritually. <laughs> Lord, you, you are abundantly good. You give us what we need when we need it. So every day, Israel could step out and get what they needed because of your provision, even though they grumbled. Lord, my prayer is that we would really enjoy you, that we would see the way that our God is, that we would see that we have a gentle shepherd who knows our deepest needs before we voice them, who sees the condition of our hearts and provides for us in such a manner as to overcome the condition of our hearts by showing us that there's redemption in Jesus Christ. We sin. We sin over and over and over again. We doubt, we complain, we grumble. And in Christ, 
we see that though the wages of sin is death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Let us treasure that as your people. Let us treasure that the way that the manna should have been treasured, but even more so. We're thankful that we, we are your people and you are our God. We're thankful that you threw the horse and rider into the sea. We're thankful for flies and gnats and frogs in, in the form of plagues. Even thousands of years later, we're thankful. Lord, your provision has always been abundant for your people and always will be. And we eagerly anticipate not being brought just from one destination to another, but when we are brought from this life to life with you eternally in your presence. Lord, I anticipate the day where millions are singing with one voice of your goodness. We love you and we thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.